0: Welcome to Veterans in America. I'm Stephanie O'Neill.
1: And I'm David Gorn. Veterans in America is a podcast produced by the nonprofit RAND Corporation that tackles issues that matter to American veterans, to their friends, to their families.
0: Join us as we journey into veterans' lives and explore the issues they and their families face after serving our nation, what they go through when they return home, and what can be done to help make their lives better.
1: Today we take a look at a hidden and underappreciated segment of the military community the more than one million caregivers who provide vital support to post-9-11 service members wounded in war.
0: These military caregivers are family members and friends of veterans who provide a range of indispensable services that save the nation millions of dollars in both long-term care and health costs.
1: The RAND Corporation took a deep-dive look at this population in its 2014 Hidden Heroes study. They found for one out of five, it's a full-time, 40-hour-a-week job or more. The overall societal value of the care provided is about $3 billion a year. Yeah, that's billion with a B.
0: Terry Tanilian is a RAND Corporation behavioral scientist and co-author of the Hidden Heroes study that found post-9-11 caregivers differed dramatically from all other caregivers. One major way, civilian caregivers and those caring for vets from pre-9-11 wars are largely adult children caring for their parents. By contrast, the largest share of post-9-11 caregivers are spouses, many of whom are raising children while they're caregiving.
1: So, Steph, you know this. Years ago, I found myself doing exactly that. My wife was sick with a terminal cancer. I was dead of two small children. And let me tell you, I still don't know how I did that. And that was only for about four years.
0: That's a really good point, David. These younger caregivers aren't caring for the elderly. They're caring for veterans with decades of life still ahead of them. So the spouses and others who take on this job essentially are committing their own lifetime to supporting these vets.
1: And that, of course, begs the question, who is caring for the caregiver?
0: One big takeaway from the RAND study is that the most relevant programs and policies that serve caregivers only do so incidentally, meaning the help or support caregivers get is only as a consequence of their relationship to the veteran they care for.
1: It was really interesting to get Terry's perspective on what's happening now and what still needs to happen so that post-9-11 military caregivers can continue to do that vital work. And we're going to get her thoughts on that later in the podcast.
0: For now, though, we're going to visit a post-9-11 caregiver who's navigated The system to recreate life for her family after her husband returned home from Afghanistan with catastrophic wounds. Her name is Jessica Allen. She's 39 years old, and I caught up with her at her home in McMinnville, Tennessee. Good morning. It's 6.30 in the morning, and the Allen family is a swirl of orchestrated chaos. Jessica's directing the before-school rush hour with the skill of a veteran air traffic controller, stepping over dogs and around kids while packing lunches and taking breakfast orders. Do you want one piece or two? It's a scene you might find in any home USA, except for the wheelchair. While on patrol in Afghanistan, Jessica's husband, former Army Staff Sergeant Chaz Allen, stepped on a 40-pound IED. The blast left him a double amputee with no legs below the knees and only one fully functioning arm. Actually,
2: 2004, 2005 was when IEDs were prevalent, and that was a real big issue.
0: That's Chaz. He's this really upbeat, powerful guy who's just full of energy.
2: When I got there in '05, it literally was like militias and also um, uh, foreign fighters. So we were dealing with people that weren't really there to help Iraq. They just really wanted to kill Westerners.
0: For Jessica, at home with two baby girls, anxiety was a constant companion.
3: You can't help but wonder if you're going to be a widow because the guy across the street got blown up. I mean, it was real. It was in our face. I mean, his group, every time we turned around, there was another phone call for somebody else because you lost, what, 30 guys? I think it was 30. I don't know. I just remember I stopped counting and I couldn't go to any more memorials
0: because it was just horrible. And then on January 22nd, 2011, Chaz and Jessica's lives changed forever.
2: We were actually uh, overwatching one of our sister platoons do a raid on a small village, and we were there kind of in support. And we were set up in this area, and we'd been there for I don't know, just over probably an hour and a half, two hours. Um, but we had actually had a bomb-sniffing dog. We had the metal detectors. You know, we'd gone around and deemed it safe, finger quotes, uh, as best as it could be. And so my guys were set up in positions. We were in this kind of a like a ditch, like a dried river or creek bed wadi. And uh, I was walking back and forth between my men, just checking positions, making sure they're staying awake, alert, pulling security. And in this one spot where I'd walked, uh, I would probably had about 10 or 12 guys step on that exact spot during that time frame that we were there. And I just happened to uh, be walking past right on top of that spot to go check one of my guys. And I took two steps to my left. Bam, that's when it happened, stepped right on it.
0: The IED explosion sheared off his legs, blew out his right elbow, and left Chaz buried waist-deep in the blast hole. He remembers because, oddly, he didn't lose consciousness. All my soldiers were, like,
2: staring at me. And I'm like, Paul, security! Because typically what happens a lot of times is when the enemy hits, you know, something goes off. A lot of times when an IED goes off, that's the green light for small arms fire to begin. And so that's what I was waiting for, is some sort of attack, you know, and... So I'm yelling, pull security. And at the same time, my medic grabs me and my team leader grabs me and they pull me out of the hole down to the low ground and immediately literally drop both knees on my uh, thighs to stop the femoral bleeding. And um, they immediately begin putting tourniquets on my thighs.
0: Amazingly, Chaz remained alert enough to radio his own injuries to the medevac helicopter. Within about 24 hours, he was back in the United States in surgery at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and he stayed there for months, undergoing numerous surgeries and rehabilitations. Jessica was at home when she learned that Chaz had stepped on a bomb.
3: I was actually working on a tax return, and I had it set up to where if something if Chaz was catastrophic, that they would call my mom first so that way my mom could be with me. And so my mom knew that if the Army called, it was bad. And so my mom went into shock, and luckily my sister was there. So then my sister calls, and she said, the Army just called. What does this mean? Because mom is literally in shock. And so I was like, that means that Chaz is more than likely going to die.
0: The army flew her from Tennessee to Walter Reed. And when she walked in his room and saw Chaz awake, relief and gratitude washed over her. I
3: mean, He could have been a quadruple amputee. He could have been paralyzed. He could have been on a feeding tube. He could have been brain dead. He could have, I mean, there are so many things that on that floor, room to room to room, we're seeing it live. So you go into our room and we are missing a couple of legs and an elbow. We got mental facilities intact.
0: I didn't care. But while the military teaches you to brace for death, it doesn't prepare you for a lifetime of caregiving. I got that phone call, that phone call out of the
4: dark uh, when life was just moving forward, that Bob had been hit by a roadside bomb. They had told me originally he'd taken shrapnel to the brain and he was going into surgery. It
0: wasn't clear if he would make it. Lee Woodruff became a national advocate for military caregivers after her husband, Bob Woodruff, a longtime war correspondent and newly appointed anchor of ABC World News Tonight, nearly died in Iraq.
1: Good morning everyone. We have to begin today with some news that has hit close to home. For all of us here at ABC, our World News tonight co-anchor Bob Woodruff and his cameraman Doug Vogt were reporting today from Taji, Iraq when their convoy was hit by an IED. What more to
0: Woodruff's we have? armored vehicle hit a roadside bomb in late 2006. The blast caused a traumatic brain injury that required a long and arduous course of physical and cognitive therapy.
4: Adrenaline is this incredible thing and it's coursing through your body when you first get the news.
0: The couple had four young children at the time Bob was wounded, and Lee, a freelance journalist and now best-selling author, recalls falling into a netherworld between the life she expected and the life war served up. Among the first lessons she learned? You're not allowed to grieve as a caregiver.
4: You're not allowed to grieve in our society because you're supposed to be so lucky that they're alive. And so you negate that grief. And I think that creates so many issues for caregivers, whether it's ulcers or migraines or cancer or all of the things that caregivers are so much more prone to.
0: RAND researcher Terry Tenelian says those most susceptible to these problems are the post-9-11 caregivers. And it's well known, she says, that the caregiver's mental and physical health is key to the veteran's well-being.
5: There are studies that have demonstrated that if you support the caregiver, it helps improve the outcomes of the care recipients.
4: It's the old oxygen mask, you know, analogy. Again, Lee Woodruff for when the plane's going down. If you don't put it on yourself first and get the oxygen, you're not going to be able to help anybody else around you.
0: But finding that time can be challenging. That's especially true for the two out of three caregivers to post 9-11 vets who, like Jessica, also work outside the home. Each morning before the Allen girls are awake, Jessica's up, dressed for work, and helping Chaz with his daily routine.
3: I get his bath set up for him, make sure everything is within reach to make sure he can get in and out, helping with transferring, helping with the legs. It all depends on what's going on, like the dressing. He can't button buttons because he can't bend the elbow. And you know how hard it is to button a button with one hand. So, you know, it's it's really just helping him adapt is what I do.
0: Sometimes Chaz wears artificial legs that Jessica helps put on, but back pain makes them uncomfortable to wear. So you'll typically find him in his lightweight sports wheelchair. He moves it with ease around the kitchen each morning, ready to assist Jessica with the before-school shuffle.
3: Alright Charles, I'll see you at the oral change place, all right? Okay. All right, let me See you in a
0: couple hours. The couple splits driving duties, each taking one daughter to school. Chaz can do that thanks to a van modified with hand controls. This morning's schedule has dad taking thirteen year old Ryan to her school while mom drives about fifteen minutes in the opposite direction to drop off sixteen year old Darren.
3: What's the bag for? Cheer. Oh, I didn't know you were taking to school. Um Yeah. Do you have a ride or do you need us to pick
0: you up? During the drive, mom and daughter catch up on Darren's after-school plans, on her upcoming tests, and on other school activities before saying goodbye. Love day. Love you. Usually Jessica would head to her office where she works for herself as an accredited financial planner. But this morning, we drop her car off at a nearby mechanic. It needs an oil change, and she's arranged for Chaz to pick us up. About 30 minutes later, he pulls up in his Dodge Caravan, and we hop in. Yay. I asked Chaz to explain how he drives without floor pedals.
2: It's a simple uh, hand control, and it's literally just a push and pull rod system. So push, brake, pull back his gas.
3: It works pretty good. And
0: the- now, is this something that the government provides? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no.
3: This van comes from a nonprofit called Help Our Military Heroes, and they provide vans
0: for any wounded soldier that needs one how would you run this family without Chaz being able to drive right yeah, yeah it would be
3: it would be impossible oh, trust s- me i'd figure out a way we'd have to have somebody else come and help us basically yeah uh-huh
0: the first four months after Chaz was wounded, a nonprofit called Hero Miles was a godsend. It provided donated airline miles that made it possible for Jessica to fly back and forth. For months, she did that, spending one week at home with the girls and one week with Chaz at Walter Reed. And it was there she caught the attention of the Obama White House.
3: I was very vocal about things, and so I spoke up and raised a little cane here and there and um, got some stuff done, and one of the guys in charge of Chaz's hospital wing, told uh, the president that I was very unusual because I wasn't angry and that I could talk, you know, and make sense and explain things.
0: Soon, she was working on wounded veteran issues alongside Michelle Obama's staff, and that led to a paid job as a director of family caregiving with a D.C.-based veterans group. Jessica says it was there she saw firsthand the heavy burdens faced by many post-9-11 caregivers, especially those who juggle work with caregiving
3: had a mom that was fired by email while her daughter is sitting there in the hospital. Another mom, they called her down to the lobby while her son's in surgery. They fire her in the lobby.
0: And in a somewhat ironic twist, Jessica finally had to leave that job because it was too demanding on her limited time as a caregiver, mother, and career woman. But she left with a roadmap of organizations that give assistance to wounded veterans, and that proved invaluable.
2: I think it was what people just assume is because a veteran has access to the VA and care they just assume that oh if you want a house you can just tell the, the VA and okay. they'll get you or build you a house like no that's not their their job is basically no. a hospital. It's a medical place.
0: The Department of Veterans Affairs did give the Allens a $75,000 grant. That and an outpouring of donations from businesses, local and national, helped the couple crowdsource the building of their wheelchair accessible home.
3: These windows were all donated. Um, a company was following us on Facebook. So she came through, she donated all these windows and these beautiful doors. She donated all of it. And then a sheetrock company heard about us. They donated all of our sheetrock the brick company heard about us. They donated all of our brick. And then the the HVAC systems were donated. Home Depot Foundation came in and donated.
0: Lee Woodruff says the military needs more women like Jessica to stand up and rattle some proverbial cages.
4: You think about a military family, sort of the last place in our society where manners are required, and they're used to sort of taking orders. They're not used to demanding things. I had no problem standing in the hall and going, I need this right now. And I call it the nurse ratchet phenomenon.
0: Lee spent weeks in the hospital as her husband recovered from his serious injuries. While there, she met new caregivers who were unable to take time off from work to be with their wounded service member. That inspired Lee and Bob to create the Bob Woodruff Foundation. The organization is a nonprofit that funnels grants to groups that help wounded post-9-11 veterans and their families.
4: We step in after they have used and received all of their benefits owed to them by the government. And our mission is really to, you know, sort of lead the charge in in identifying and and finding organizations that already exist out there that are doing great work on the ground and,
0: and provide grants and stay involved. Jessica Allen says that kind of help kept her marching forward during the darkest moments of her early caregiving days. And now, seven years later, her family and marriage are thriving and her career is growing. Yet, she says, there are still times when it all becomes overwhelming.
3: Every once in a while, I really hate this life. Every once in a while, it just really sucks. And, you know, I'm blessed with amazing friends. And so, um, you know, I'll go... Uh, You know, like my friend Andrea, I'd be like, all right, it's time because she's in the same boat. And so we'll just go set up a trip and we'll go hang out with each other and just kind of vent about what the war has done to us and that kind of thing. And we just get it out. I mean, you just but we go have fun.
1: I have to say, Stephanie, until I heard the Allens tell their story, I was one of those people who thought the government provided almost everything for wounded veterans. I didn't realize how much of the help they do get comes from the private sector.
0: Yeah, it's both heartwarming and hugely concerning. But since publication of the RAND Hidden Hero study, the governments acknowledged that caregivers are like warriors on the front line. They're doing this vital grunt work. And by doing so, we're saving the government a lot of money.
1: And I would imagine these days, social media plays an important role in linking those military caregivers to all the many private organizations that are out there.
0: Yeah, and that's true. But what the RAND study recommends is that we find ways to formalize this kind of support. Again, it's so easy to wrongly assume that, you know, if you come home wounded from war, the government will take care of you for life. And that really does not happen.
1: Well, the government certainly helps, but not with everything. And that's what Rand's Hidden Heroes study underscored.
0: And joining us now is the RAND Corporation's Terry Tenelian. She She's co author of Hidden Heroes, the nation's largest ever study of military caregivers. Welcome, Terry. Thank you for having me. It's pretty amazing to me that there hasn't been a study like this done before your study.
5: No, there hadn't been. We looked to the literature, and there had been some studies done on caregivers among the civilian population, but most of those studies were done among older Americans. So, caregivers to those who were struggling with dementia, caregivers to those uh, with different types of cancer. And so it was difficult to understand how those findings might translate to this different population um, who were more likely tending to amputations or spinal cord injuries or things like post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. And so it was really um, of concern that we didn't know that those findings and recommendations for how better to support them would translate to this population who was tending to different needs. What's out there for
0: military caregivers?
5: So, when we did the study in 2014, we really did try to understand the full landscape of programs, policies, and resources to support caregivers. So, we started off by just doing some generic searches to look at the programs and resources for caregivers in general. Then, we tried to understand, of those, what are specifically available to support military caregivers. And when we looked, you know, again, you kind of peel back the layers of the onion to try to identify those services that have. Have direct interaction with caregivers. And we went from a list of like 500 down to a list of about 120 organizations. And then we tried to understand to what extent are those types of programs um, available and accessible to military caregivers based upon their needs and based upon their characteristics. The majority of caregiving resources and programs are really designed to support caregivers to individuals who are aging. And they come about through um, our policies and programs, the federal government, as well as the state governments, and even in some counties to support older Americans. And so they are really focused on supporting caregivers of individuals with dementia, Alzheimer's, et cetera. But for military caregivers, the Department of Veterans Affairs offers a number of programs and resources, both for those specifically uh, caring for post-9-11 care recipients, as well as those across all eras of service. The Department of Defense offers some programs in support of military caregivers to individuals who are still in the military um, on active duty, perhaps before they've transitioned to veteran status. But then also there's a number of programs in the nonprofit, non-governmental arena that specifically target military and veteran caregivers as well. In 2014, this number was much smaller than it is today in 2018. Since the release of our report, we've seen an additional um, proliferation of programs and services to specifically target military caregivers. What
0: I thought was interesting in the report was that um, a lot of times these programs actually focus more on the recipient of care rather than the caregiver.
5: Absolutely. Good point. Um, when we did look at these programs, one of the biggest findings was that they were designed to support the care recipient. And as a consequence, kind of as a afterthought, they would also try to serve the caregiver, recognizing that oftentimes the care recipient couldn't take advantage of the program or the service unless the caregiver came along with perhaps to push the wheelchair or to carry um, the artificial limb or to monitor for triggers of post-traumatic stress disorder. So as these care Caregivers were now involved in these programs, the organizers realized well, we need to do something with the caregivers, what are they going to do? Just sit here and listen. So they began thinking about opportunities to support them. Um, There are a number of programs that specifically try to target the caregiver and provide them with uh, respite or other types of support with household tasks. So things that you can um, get to help, not just with financial needs, but perhaps somebody to come mow your lawn, somebody to help with transportation, somebody to help you navigate systems of care and get additional case management. So those are really more targeted to the caregiver versus the care recipient. So did you find
0: that there was a dearth of programs for them or that there was plenty out there?
5: There were plenty out there for caregivers to older individuals. There weren't as many that were specifically targeted towards the younger caregiver. And so post-9-11, caregivers were largely ineligible for many of the county-based, state-based, and even some of the federal-level resources outside of the VA that support caregivers because they required the care recipient to be over the age of 60, for example. Or many of them required you to be the spouse of the care recipient. And so for those caregivers that were parents or friends, which did represent a significant proportion of the post 9-11 caregiving population, they weren't eligible for those programs. And what's happened since then? Since then, we've seen a lot of new programs um, come to be to specifically target uh, caregivers and military caregivers in particular. We've also seen the introduction of new legislation to expand um, existing programs within the VA to not just focus on the post nine eleven caregiver, but to open up the program of comprehensive assistance um, to other eras of service as well. So we're starting to see an expansion and a change in some of the eligibility criteria for programs to support caregivers.
0: For instance, for those who support Vietnam
5: vets. Correct. Um, The VA Mission Act was recently signed um, and will be implemented and hopefully um, funded. And over time, over a two-year time period, the VA will be expanding that program to cover caregivers to veterans of all eras.
0: What are some of the ways your report has changed military caregiving in America?
5: Soon after the release of our report, we saw that the Department of Defense instituted a brand new program to support uh, caregivers um, through peer uh, support. We saw the um, implementation and creation of a new online peer support network called the Military Veteran Caregiver Network. So another opportunity for caregivers to connect with each other, um, share stories and share resources. So we saw new programs created. We saw the introduction of major pieces of legislation that sought to implement some of our recommendations. Uh, We also saw new programs specifically designed to provide workforce and workplace accommodations for caregivers. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation, the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, they've kind of taken additional efforts to expand the programs that they were implementing. Sesame Workshop is now also trying to um, devise and create content uh, to support the youth within military caregiving families. So we've seen quite a number of initiatives and efforts designed to really expand how we can better support caregivers in our communities.
0: Looking into your crystal ball, what kinds of future needs will these caregivers face as these veterans of the Afghanistan and Iraq War age?
5: One of the striking findings um, in our work was the percentage of parents who were performing caregiving roles. And if we know one thing for certain, we are all going to age. And as those parents age, their ability to serve as the caregiver um, may diminish. And so we will need to find caregiving substitutes for those parents to continue to care for the needs of their children of the post-9-11 era. Um, We do know the age of the post-9-11 care recipients is also younger, and they can expect to live for decades um, with some of these conditions. And so we need to think long-term about how we're best able to support them as a nation? Do Are there other family members? Uh, do we need to think about other institutional um, facilities that are going to be needed when parents aren't available to care for their um, adult children?
0: We don't know what the answer is to that.
5: We don't know what the answer is to that. Again, you know, we need more studies to kind of track the longitudinal aspect of the caregiving journey, so to speak, um, but making sure that we've got continuity in caregiving for the post 911 11 care recipients is going to be really critical. And we also know that um, there's a strain in these families and a strain on these marriages. And so for even those caregivers who are spouses, they're at increased risk for marital dissolution. And so how can we better support the marriage? How can we support the family? Um, how do they navigate that dual role of being a partner um, and continuing to have an intimate personal relationship while also being a caregiver, uh, which can seem more like a parenting uh, relationship than a partner-based relationship. So how do we support them to make sure that they stay healthy long-term so that they can, you know, both thrive within the relationship?
0: Is there anything that citizens can do to make sure that there are programs that uh, serve caregivers and the, the military service person?
5: I would say that I think it's incumbent upon all of us to know our neighbors. And so to know whether or not there are caregivers and care recipients in your community and how you can support them individually, but also how you might be able to get engaged and support the organizations that are trying to help caregivers directly. There are new initiatives. There are hidden hero cities now all across um, America that are trying to do more on the local level to support caregivers and their care recipients. And so there are multiple ways that individuals can get involved.
0: Terry Tanelian, Senior Behavioral Scientist with the RAND Corporation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephanie. Veterans in America is a podcast produced by the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit research organization developing solutions to public policy challenges to help make communities throughout the world safer and more secure, healthier and more prosperous.
1: We would like to thank everyone at the RAND Corporation and our stellar engineer, Kevin Ferguson. Our theme song is called Too Cool. It's by Kevin MacLeod. You can find more music at his website, incompetech.com. He also produced the interstitial music used in this week's episode. For Veterans in America, I'm David Gorn.
0: And I'm Stephanie O'Neill.